This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. For years, hip-hop has been dominated by men and hyper-masculine lyrics. That's changing. Where we're at right now with who's running hip-hop, where the barometer is at with hip-hop, the girls and the gays are running things. That's Sydney Matten. She's a host for the NPR podcast Louder Than a Riot, along with Rodney Carmichael. They'll both join us to discuss their current season, which focuses on hip-hop's strain of misogyny and homophobia, and how a new generation of women and queer artists are refusing to stand for it. We'll also revisit the legacy of the late rapper Biggie Smalls with journalist Justin Tinsley. Biggie is seen as one of the all-time great musical storytellers. He called himself the Black Alfred Hitchcock. Biggie was killed in a drive-by shooting in 1997, just two weeks before his second album, Life After Death, came out. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. How does the brain process memories? Why is AI a solution and a problem for our climate? What is leadership in 2025 and beyond? The TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions and the most complicated ideas of our time with the world's greatest thinkers. Listen now to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. Terry has our first interview, so I'll let her introduce it. Hip-hop is being celebrated this month in honor of its 50th anniversary. My guests are two music journalists who love hip-hop, cover it for NPR Music, have written extensively about it for most of their adult lives, and grew up with it. But they're also not afraid to call out hip-hop when they see misogyny, homophobia, or transphobia. Rodney Carmichael and Sidney Madden host the NPR hip-hop podcast, Louder Than a Riot. Here's how they describe this season. And from NPR Music, this is Louder Than a Riot. Where we confront the double standard that's become the standard. On every episode this season, we tackle one unwritten rule of hip-hop that affects the most marginalized among us and holds the entire culture back. And one that a new generation of rap refuses to stand for. This season, they're highlighting the stories of female, gay, and queer rappers who were daring enough to be themselves, in spite of all the pressure to conform to the standards set by the straight, often hyper-masculine men who have dominated rap for most of its history. In the first season, Louder Than a Riot investigated the connection between hip-hop and mass incarceration, or as they put it, the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. Unfortunately, Louder Than a Riot was one of the shows NPR eliminated during its recent round of budget cuts, so the current second season is also the final one. 
Sydney Madden, Rodney Carmichael, welcome to Fresh Air. I've really enjoyed your podcast, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm sorry that the show was canceled, but at least you got two really good seasons out of it. Oh, thanks so much, Terry. We're definitely glad to be here. Appreciate even knowing you've been listening, so that's great. I know. We're definitely honored to be here, and we're proud of the two seasons that got us here. So thank you so much. What's the hip-hop track that first got you really excited about hip-hop? Oh, man. (laughs) I have a standard answer to that. It's a it's it's a track that's still probably is celebrated today. You, you probably heard it a lot this month if you were tuned in to Hip Hop Fifty Celebrations. It's not the first hip hop song I ever heard, but it's the first song that showed me that hip hop, you know, could be more than just partying, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the song by uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, "The Message." I love this track so much. It's so well written. And of course, um, Millie Mel is doing the rapping, but Duke Booty actually wrote the Duke lyric. Duke Booty, that's right. And, and it's so good because it shows everything that's going on outside that's making the rapper wonder how he keeps from going under. And um, it it's shows both like anger, social commentary, and vulnerability at the same time. Exactly. Because, you know, he's he's trying to prevent himself from going under and saying like, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. So um, it's just so well done. And the rapping is so good on it. And you know, Terry, if I can say like, that's still my favorite kind of rap song. Like that's a whole lane of rap that, you know, continues. Like if you look at trap, trap music is very much that lane. Quote unquote gangster rap in the nineties was very much that lane. You know, all, all of my favorite rappers, A lot of them talked about struggle and overcoming Mm -hmm. and, you know, insurmountable Mm -hmm. odds, all of that stuff, you know. That's hip-hop at its finest, you know. I'm really glad you chose this. Let's hear a little bit of it. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under like a jungle sometimes it makes me wonder how i keep from going under broken glass everywhere people pissing on the stage you know they just don't care i can't take the smell can't take the noise got no money to move out i guess i got no choice rats in the front room roaches in the back junkies in the alley with the baseball bat I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far Cause a man with the touch of repossessed my car Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window watching. And Sydney, is there a track for you that you listened to early on that really kind of made you fall in love with the music. And I realize you're younger than Rodney, so you were kind of surrounded by it. And yeah. that's all you, it's first, probably the first music you heard. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, choose something that was really formative for you. I do vividly remember going to the supermarket and being allowed to buy the Miseducation of Lauren Hill CD with my allowance. And 
playing it back to back over and over, but, you know, stopping on certain songs. And I feel like Lost Ones was really one of those songs for me. Um, It just talked about, similar to Rodney, the tension, the fleeting nihilism, the diary aspect to it, and really just putting to words so much of the swirling emotions I felt coming up but never knew how to describe or never had the vocabulary of for myself. All right, let's hear it. It's funny how money changes situation. Miscommunication lead to complication. My emancipation don't fit your equation. I was on the humble you on every station. Someone play young Lauren like she done. But remember not to game the one of the sun. Everything you did has already been done. I know all the tricks from bricks to kingstown. My ting done major king done one wrong. Now understand El Boogie, not violent. But if a thing tests me, run for me, can Can't take a threat to me, no one. Been this way since creation. A groupie call you far from temptation. Now you want ball over separation. Tarnish my image in the conversation. Who you gonna scrimmage like you the champion? You might win some, but you just lost one. You might win some, but you just lost one. You might win some, but you just lost one. You might win some, but you just Okay, so that was the track chosen by uh, Sydney Madden as one of the formative tracks that she loved in, in hip hop. So why did you decide to do a season critical of hypermasculinity and misogyny in hip-hop? Well, coming off the first season where, as you said, Terry, it was all about the collision of rhyme and punishment in America, we still wanted to examine that unique and complicated relationship. And so what we did is we shifted our lens to look inward at hip-hop on the eve of what would be its 50th birthday and reconcile some of the inequalities that hip-hop has not pushed against but actually embodied in becoming this behemoth of, of industry and culture. And where we're at right now with who's running hip-hop, where the barometer is at with hip-hop, we talk about it a little bit in the second season, like the girls and the gays are running things. Like they are the culture crusaders at this point. When you think about who is creating trends, who's starting talking points, who's ending and deading old tropes and old archetypes. And we wanted to spotlight not only those people, but kind of examine everything that has come before that they need to be pushing against in the first place. Um, Rodney, were you reluctant at all to take on this theme or these themes during the season, thinking you'd get a lot of pushback? from from hip-hop fans for criticizing aspects of hip-hop? Um, definitely not. I think that Sydney and I were very much on the same page about season two and the theme. And, you know, both season one and season two were very much about us taking the temperature of the culture in that moment. And when we looked around and saw what was happening and what was going on within hip-hop at that time, it was like, you know the story subject and theme for this season was basically being served to us. Um, So it was well past due, but also right on time, you know, and I'm speaking specifically about Megan the Stallion and Tory Lanez. That case, you know, interestingly enough, just been resolved uh, in the last few weeks. Tory Lanez got sentenced to 10 years 
Now, when we were conceptualizing this season, the trial hadn't even started yet, you know. But the culture, hip-hop culture specifically, was reacting really strongly to to what happened. And Megan Thee Stallion, honestly, was just taking a lot of flack, a lot of heat. And, I mean, a lot of the themes that we cover in this season were happening in real time. You know, and in the case for for people that aren't familiar, was a, a case of Tory Lane shooting uh, Megan Thee Stallion after they had been at at a house party in in the Hollywood Hills uh, one night. And she didn't come forward immediately, and when she did, a lot of people didn't believe her. And exactly. There were even stories exactly. that oh, she shot herself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was it, it was um, wild. Yeah. But finally, it came to trial, and and he was sentenced. I want to talk with you about one of the first women who in hip-hop who you devote an episode to early in the season, and that's Shah Rock. And she was in the group, the Funky Four Plus One. She was the plus one. And they're really early in the history of rap. Their first recording is 1980 on Sugar Hill Records. Sugar Hill was like the first hip-hop label. And, and before we talk about what happened to her, let's hear some music. So this is That's the Joint, and we'll pick up on the part where she's rapping. She's the joint. Up, y'all. Do, do it up. The Shah Rock is going to show you how you get real rough. I'm Shah Rock, and I can't be stopped for all the fly guys. I will hit the top. Well, I can do it for the ones go weak and strong. And I can do it for the ones that are right or wrong. Well, I'm listed on the column that's classified. I can be a nurse, and I'm qualified to talk about respect. I won't neglect my strategy. It's for you to see, so don't turn away by what I say. Cause I'm on, I'm bad when I'm talking to you. Therefore, fly brothers who can do it too. The party people in the place is just for you. So get down, get, get, get on down. I'm the plus one more, and I'm going down. She's the best female in this in town. And everybody know that I'm Goldie Brown. And you know, she's a joy. So that was the Funky Four Plus One with Shaw Rock being the plus one. So they're the first group, the first hip-hop group on Saturday Night Live. She's the first, I think she's the first like recorded hip-hop female. Um, why was she basically shut out? Well, one of the big things that, that ends up happening to Shaw Rock that just kind of shows how different the times are now versus then is... Um, Really at the height of the Funky Four's success, Shara gets pregnant. And the height of success for them is being the first hip-hop group to appear on Saturday Night Live. You know, they have this really big performance. A lot of, you know, a lot of their peers at the time are upset because they feel like they should have been the group that was chosen to, you know, do this big thing, bring hip-hop to the masses on Saturday Night Live. Um, the Funky Four was picked specifically because Shaw Rock was in the group. You know, this was uh, the night that Debbie Harry was hosting the show, and she was familiar with the Funky Four and really liked them because they were young and fresh, and they had Shaw Rock. You know, and she wanted to spotlight him. And uh, Shah Rock is pregnant at the time of the performance, which a lot of people in hip hop, you know, don't find out till years later. I mean, we talked to DMC or run DMC for this episode. He's a huge fan of Shah Rock. He didn't know until we told him during the interview that Shah Rock was pregnant at that time. 
you know, so she was hiding it at the time because she felt like it would in some way, shape or form be uh, construed as, as detrimental to their success and everything they were doing. And when she told them after the show, that's what happened. You know, her group members did not support her, did not hold her down. And, you know, the sentiment pretty much was, man, you know, we're on the cusp here and you're messing this up right now. So there were lots of factors that went into the group splitting up. But her treatment by her group members, uh, by hip hop culture at that time was really uh, a huge part of of what ended up happening and, and why her name you know, has has not rang out in the way that it should have based on her being this pioneering, you know, first woman MC. And compare that to how pregnancy is treated now. I mean, exactly. hip-hop artists, like, show off their baby bump. It's a, it's a big thing that they're really proud of that they show in various, in various ways. Um, yeah. It's the and, thing now. It's, it's, yeah, not, it's, it's not taboo it's, anymore. Yeah. No, which is great. We're listening to Terry's conversation with Rodney Carmichael and Sydney Madden, hosts of the NPR hip hop podcast, Louder Than a Riot. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com slash thematic investing. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Rodney Carmichael and Sidney Madden, host of the NPR hip-hop podcast Louder Than a Riot. Their current season is about misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia in hip-hop, and the new generation of performers who are not standing for it. So I want to talk with you about your own lives in hip-hop and how the music influenced you. Rodney, you have a whole episode about how you were influenced by the hyper-masculinity and misogyny in an era of hip-hop when you were growing up. Um, what was the image of masculinity you got from the music that you most loved? If you were a young black man growing up in the 90s and you were receiving these messages of black men being an endangered species and this war on drugs, which we now understand was was really a war on black people, the mass incarceration era is kind of getting ramped up. 
And there was an intensity, you know, the, the crack era. There was an intensity around how you present yourself as a man. And the music was reflecting that as well, you know. And a lot of my favorite rappers were hyper, hyper-masculine. And it was something that I fed off of because in a lot of ways it felt like it was something that I needed to be as well. How did it actually shape your behavior? Or did it shape your behavior? You know, listening to lyrics by hyper-masculine rappers, you know, or people posing as hyper-masculine and rapping about guns and drugs and women and sex. And so did that shape your behavior as well as just, you know, fantasies and, you know, having those lyrics live in your head? I mean, I think it made me, it made me check my sensitivity which is probably the first thing that happens, right? You just start to, you start to learn how to guard uh, or hold up a guard or mask your own sensitivity. And vulnerability. And vulnerability, yeah. Especially, well, both really with, with other men, but most definitely with, with women as well. Um, you know, women that you're interested in, women that you might have, tender feelings for but you know you, you you might feel like it's not necessarily cool to express that too much you know or be too open or vulnerable about that you know you, you learn how to pose and mask a little bit or at least you you try to Cindy what about you you, you grew up with a lot of the same music how did it affect your idea of what it meant to be female yeah, there were messages of overt objectification, but there were also messages of being the weirdo and being successful at it. So I'm thinking like, you know, yeah, I, I grew up on Trina, but I also grew up on Lauren Hill and I also grew up on Missy Elliott, which if you say those three names, you could think of like completely divergent messages and divergent paths of what those women represent in hip hop. But to me, it was like I was on shuffle and I was listening to all those messages at the same time. So it's hard to say that I had one succinct and loud message about what being a black woman was courtesy of hip hop because I had all this variety and all this stuff. Well, you had women rappers. Women were <laughs> coming forward. Women were popular. So I'd like to end by asking you to choose a current or recent recording that you love, a hip-hop recording that you love, that makes you really excited about the present and future of hip-hop. Um, Sydney, you want to start? Yes. Okay. So as we said earlier... The girlies are really running things in rap right now, the precursors to everything influential, everything popping. And one of my favorite tracks that's come out in in the last year, I think it actually came out last fall, is Tomorrow 2, which is um, by the Memphis rapper Glorilla with a feature from Cardi B. So first of all, Cardi B has been on a legendary feature run right now in the last few years and this Memphis and Bronx mashup is just such a great calling card for um, cross-cultural collaborations and showing where it can be catapulted to. It works so beautifully. The beat is sparse. It has just this like sinister piano to it. It's quotable. It's aspirational. 
And it's a whole mantra. I mean, like, I don't I don't care about my credit score. I could be up tomorrow, okay? I don't care what you say about me today. The sun is going to shine tomorrow. I'm good, you know? It's one of those songs that you cannot be mad at after listening to. And it's heavy in my rotation, and it will be forever. All right, let's hear it. I can't love you, baby, like your so don't leave her. He gonna choose her every time, because it's cheaper to keep her. Can't say your name up in my songs. Might not with you tomorrow. Can't get my feelings hurt today. I won't give a tomorrow. If it's about no credit score, I might be rich this tomorrow. Every day the sun won't shine, but that's why I love tomorrow. Riding with my twin and um, and we all look good as She said she my eye, but I don't know her. Had to look her up. I know that I'm rich, but I can help it. I'm hurt as I've been on these Next so long, sometimes I fucking stuck. Yeah. I can put you in my business. Yeah. You might wish me dead tomorrow. Yeah. Be on today, sing every word of up tomorrow. I still got cases open. Keep your mouth shut tomorrow. Play with me today, then get some sleep. You know it's up tomorrow. Okay, so that was Sydney Madden's pick for a song that's making her excited about the present and future of hip hop. Rodney Carmichael, your turn. Can you choose something for us? Yeah, so I'm gonna pick a song from an album that dropped earlier in August. It's by the artist No Name, and the name of the song is Namesake. And I like this song because she is calling out everybody, including herself, in terms of how they, you know, are active participants in capitalism. And when I say everybody, I'm talking about some of the top names in the business, you know, from Jay-Z and Beyonce and Rihanna, Kendrick Lamar. And, and like I said, she name checks herself too for, for performing at Coachella. But the thing about this song that I really like is it shows that hip hop can still be a countercultural force, you know, because it takes a lot to be an artist of no names caliber and um, to go against some of the biggest names in the industry. And, and really going against the industry and calling the industry out um, while you're in the industry, you know, that's a hard challenge. And it really, to me, it resonates with a lot of the spirit of what hip hop was in its infancy when it really felt like this revolutionary art form. Well, let's go out with that. So before we do, I want to thank you both. Rodney Carmichael, Sidney Madden, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for the podcast, Louder Than a Riot. Thank you, Terry. Thanks so much, Terry. We really appreciate it. So Rodney Carmichael and Sydney Madden host the NPR hip hop podcast Louder Than a Riot. And here's no name. Yo, I never need no man. I got a little bit of love and a couple of friends. Picture me rolling up the bud in the South Sudan. Yo, I never need no, no, no. Yo, I never need no man. I got a little bit of love and a couple of friends. Picture me rolling up the bud in the South Sudan. Yo, I never need no, no, no name. Where's your cane? We can stand in the rain. A good life, we can fight plain tame. Same day the airstrike strike down our rain. I ran into the house with a blunt in my hand. Let's smoke. I don't want to see death no more. Let's fight. They got the devil hiding in plain sight. Rodney Carmichael and Sydney Matten host the NPR hip hop podcast Louder Than a Riot. They spoke with Terry Gross. All month we've been commemorating the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And as any hip hop fan will tell you, we can't talk about the genre without including one of rap music's pioneers, the late Christopher Wallace, Biggie Smalls. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine, something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine, hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic Molly Malls. Wallace's album, Ready to Die, was an instant hit when it came out in 1994. 
Rolling Stone recently named it the greatest hip-hop album of all time. Biggie recorded it when he was just 22 years old, and it was his only album released during his lifetime. Biggie was murdered 16 days before the release of his second album, Life After Death. Joining us today to talk about the life and legacy of the notorious B.I.G. is journalist Justin Tinsley. He's the author of the book, It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. In the book, Tinsley explores Biggie's life in the context of not only rap, but the wider cultural and political forces that shaped him, including immigration, Reagan-era politics, the war on drugs, and mass incarceration. Justin Tinsley is a senior sports and culture reporter for ESPN's Anscape. Justin, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me, Tanya. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You know, taking a look at the cultural and political forces at play during Biggie's life is such an interesting way to explore his impact. So the first album came out on September 13th, 1994. That's Ready to Die. That was the same day as the 94 crime bill was passed. When you put those two dates together and re-listen to that album with that knowledge in mind, what did you hear? Let me tell you, Tanya, when I when I first found out that both of those things happened on the same day, I was like, wow, like that is that's a form of serendipity that I wasn't expecting to encounter, you know, during my research process. So. When you take the 94 crime bill and you understand the discussion and the discourse that went around that bill uh, and listen to the album again, to me, it sounds like a rebuttal to that actual crime bill, basically saying like, okay, we understand how Washington and Congress and, you know, so many so many other levels of government uh, view these inner city kids. But I'm going to give you the perspective of being an inner city kid. This is what we have to survive. This is what happiness looks like. This is what fear looks like. This is what paranoia looks like that you can't find in the actual verbiage of the 94 crime bill. Like this is these are the things you're trying to curb. And when you're listening to the album, like these are the things we're trying to survive. Like it's so bad out here that we're telling anybody who will listen that like I am ready to die to escape the circumstances that I've been given. Let's explore a little bit more what you mean by that. So the first song on uh, this debut album of Biggie's Ready to Die, it starts first off with Biggie being born. So it's kind of like an Mm -hmm. interlude, growing up with so much potential, then getting caught up, then going to jail. That's the interlude. And then there is the first song, Things Done Changed. It picks up and the character, Notorious B.I.G., gets out of jail, returns home and is reminded of this violent misery and, and racist contempt of the crack era. Let's listen. If I wasn't in the rap game, I'd probably have a key knee deep in the crack game because the streets is a short stop. Either you're slinging crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. And it's hard being young from the slums, eating five-cent gums, not knowing where your meal's coming from. And now it's getting crazier and major. Kids younger than me, they got the sky grand pages. Going out of town, blowing up. Six months later, all the dead bodies showing up. It made me want to grab the nine and the shoddy. But I gotta go identify the body. Damn, what happened to the summertime cookout? Every time I turn around, I'm getting took out. My mama got cancer in the breast. Don't ask me why I'm stressed. Things done changed. That was Things Done Changed from Biggie Small's debut album, Ready to Die. Justin, this album was like a rocket. If we could go back to 1994, it was instantly mm-hmm. popular. And 
Do you think that it resonated so deeply for a generation because it was so real, so raw? We use that term so often, so real, so raw, but like what that truly means, Biggie really was of the streets. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is, if you're from Brooklyn, if you're from New York in the early 90s and you were outside at that point in time, you knew who Biggie was, especially if you grew up in Brooklyn. And so Brooklyn is is such an important city in terms of the history of hip hop. And Biggie represents so much of that history in like one body because his story wasn't fabricated. His story wasn't made up in terms of what he experienced in the streets. And so when you have that type of reflection and that type of introspection and if you grew up in that time, you don't even have to be from Brooklyn. If you remember what it was like being a young black person growing up in the early 90s and living in the inner city, you saw a lot of the uh, same things that Biggie was talking about. We heard that first verse on Things Done Change and he ends it with like, step away with your fist fight ways because this ain't back in the day. Like nowadays, like people are getting killed. Like the, the, the gun violence is out of control. This is what we have to survive. So like there, there was an authenticity to it because you knew what he was saying, he actually survived. Thankfully, at that point in time, he survived because you know so many casualties that won't be able to tell this story because they're they're either dead or in jail now. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is Justin Tinsley. He's a sports and culture reporter for Anscape and the author of the book, It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. We'll continue our conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Justin Tinsley, sports and culture reporter for Anscape, and author of the book, It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. Biggie was born in 1972. His parents had immigrated from the Caribbean, and I thought it was really interesting the way you separate the persona from the person. So the persona we know is Biggie Smalls. And as you write, That persona had only been around for about five years, but the man behind the persona, Christopher Wallace, had a pretty full life before fame. What were some Mm -hmm. of the things that really Mm -hmm. surprised you about a young Christopher Wallace when he was in those single digits and and, um, preteen, adolescent years? So... When you listen to Biggie rap, right, you're you're listening like, okay, this guy is special. He was put on this earth for a lot of reasons, but one of the most important was to make music. You haven't heard too many people quite like him. And when he's younger, 
he has this photographic memory that he can remember things and just recite them uh, almost on cue. So like when I'm speaking to people that he grew up with, they were like, oh, yeah, he never really studied when he was in school because he always knew the coursework. Like School was very, very easy for him. And with school being so easy, that's why he got bored so easily as well. So like this guy, he had notebooks and he would just write rap lyrics down all day not not necessarily his because he was like 9 10 11 years old but he would write the lyrics to you know rapper's delight or grandmaster flash and the furious fives music or whatever the case may be and he had a wide range of of musical tastes like one of the funniest quotes from the book was when Biggie was in elementary school, he would he would tell his friends like, yeah, man, I can't go to sleep without my country music. And everybody would be like, huh? This was because such an interesting such detail. Right. This was such mm-hmm. an interesting detail about his love for country music. And it doesn't it's not so far fetched because I think, as you were about to say, his mother um, was a Jamaican immigrant and she loved country music, too. Yeah. And, and, and it makes sense when you listen to his music. Biggie is seen as one of the all-time great musical storytellers like he he called himself the black alfred hitchcock like he loves storytelling and when you listen to country music that so much of country music is based around the art of storytelling so like when when you start to piece together those little things like like his life becomes even more colorful than it already was his mother valetta she was a single mom. She raised him, as you said, in Brooklyn. When he was a toddler, the city of New York, as, as you write, was almost bankrupt. So the city's troubles were very real. It was a very real backdrop to his life growing up. But his mother didn't play around. She was very strict. It, it wasn't enough to keep Biggie from being lured to the street life, though. I guess no. like many mm-hmm. kids who grew up poor, he wanted money. And the 80s was a very materialistic era. I mean, I just know that was hard for her. There was a love there between them two that not even death could break, you know, because Valletta looked at it like he's all I have here. Like, I'm not moving back to Jamaica. Obviously, my son and his father are not going to have a relationship. So I have to double, triple and quadruple down on the love. And honestly, the discipline that I have to put on him because I'm the only one that's going to be able to do all this. And she's a single mother. She's a school teacher. So she's given her son the the best life that he can. But as you said, the 80s was a very materialistic time. And I mean, not much has changed, of course. But like when you cut on the TV and you see you see things like lifestyles of the rich and famous and you look out your window and you see the guys that are really making money, they're they're standing on the block all day. And so Biggie was never going to go to McDonald's and flip burgers for minimum wage when he knew that real money was just outside of his door. Justin, the way that Biggie got into rap was through drug dealing. Um, As you write, he started traveling from New York to the Carolinas to sell, and he'd rap in the car to instrumentals. And you talked to friends who were astonished by his skill. And just to put this into context, like everybody was rapping around that time. So it wasn't unusual to be rapping to an instrumental tape. But he was pretty exceptional in his talent. No, absolutely. So like, like you said, everybody was rapping. Like, rap was still... I guess you could say at that point in time, an infant genre, like the, the the turn of the 80s into the 90s. Everybody was rapping from the neighborhood. But in a lot of cases, it was really just to pass time, because here's the thing about drug dealing. It's not like you go on the corner at 7 a.m. and then you have constant business from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Or, or whenever you clock out. 
but you have a lot of downtime. So like rapping was, you know, a means to pass time. But like when people heard him, it's like, okay, I'm just rapping for fun. This guy has something special. But the thing about Biggie was he never promoted himself. Like he always believed like, yo, big, you're nice. He was like, all right, cool. Whatever you say, I want to, I want to get your music in front of people. Is that cool? Yeah. Whatever you do. But Biggie never actually handed a demo tape to anybody. Why you wrote like, yeah, he was, Mm -hmm. he exuded this air of confidence, but you write that he was pretty fearful of rejection. Yeah. He did not want to be told. No, he didn't want to be told. No. and, And that's, that's a, that's as human of a quality as there is, right? Nobody likes to be rejected. And nobody wants to be told that what they believe is their art isn't good enough. So Biggie was just like, I'm not even going to put myself in that position. But if you, Tanya, feel like I'm, you know, I got some talent and you know some people, yeah, you put it in front of them and we'll see where it goes. But he never actually did that himself. So Biggie has this demo tape. It somehow gets to this young producer, P. Diddy. Yeah, so Biggie's demo tape had become kind of like an urban legend because so many people heard it and so many people wanted other people to hear it. And it ultimately got to uh, Puffy at Uptown and he heard that demo tape and he was like, there's no way this dude is that great at rapping. This has to be heavily edited. So one thing leads to another. And at one point in the sit down, Puffy was like, hey, I want to hear you rap. And Biggie raps and he blows Puffy's mind away. Like, yo, somehow the demo tape undersold this guy's talent. And I love the demo tape. So he tells Biggie right there, I can get you a record out by the summer. And Biggie's like, yeah, sure, whatever. But until that moment comes where you offer me a contract and I actually see real money, I have to go down to North Carolina. I have to go back to the block. I have to go back to Brooklyn and basically sell until you come through with your word. So the crazy story is Biggie is down in Raleigh, North Carolina, because that's that's where he went to hustle when he went down south. Uh, He's in his house. And Puffy calls him and Puffy is mad. I told you not to go back down there. I told you I told you I was going to get the contract right. I told you I was going to get your money. I'm looking at the check right now. Please come back to New York and sign this contract. Big toy with the idea of standing Raleigh, but he ultimately decided to get on a bus and head back to New York. And I lie to you not, Tanya. I lie to you not. Four or five hours later, the police raided the house, the trap house that Biggie lived in and arrested everybody and took them to jail. And they they all did prison time. So that's how close we were to never hearing the notorious B.I.G. or the name Biggie Smalls, the rapper. Bad Boy was the record label that um, Puff Daddy started. Biggie was something new for him. He really wanted to get a grounding in hip hop. Yeah. Yeah. And in 94, Flavor in Your Ear is like the biggest hip-hop song in the country. Then the remix comes out. And if you remember the remix, Biggie is the first verse on there. And, you know, he has so many classic lines on that verse from Don't Be Mad, UPS is Hiring, uh, More Butt Than Ashtrays. Like, it's so many. Like, And then the shift starts to happen around the summer of 1994 because Biggie wanted Ready to Die he wanted the album to originally be called Teflon Don as a homage to John Gotti and the mafia. But Puffy wanted to go, go a different route, a more commercial route. I don't know how ready to die is considered a commercial title, but you know, it stuck. 
And two of the last songs recorded for that album were two songs that Biggie honestly did not want to do. And that's Juicy and Big Papa, obviously two of his biggest songs ever, because Biggie wanted to rap as hard, as vicious, as gritty as possible. So when you hear songs like Things Done Changed or Suicidal Thoughts or uh, the title track Ready to Die, there was an understanding between them. And people like Mr. C had to be in uh, Biggie's ear basically saying, like, look, Puffy is going to let you say whatever the hell you want to say for about 85 to 90 percent of the album. And he, he has no problem doing that because he knows who he signed. He knows the talent that you are. But you also have to understand that Puffy is also talented. He also understands marketing and publicity and advertising. And you got to give the people some records that, you know, they can party to. They can like live with. Can party to, always... can be on the radio. And Juicy yeah. definitely was one so, of those songs. Yeah. So when Juicy comes out in the summer of 1994, it's 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 an instant heat seeking missile because you recognize the 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 the, the sample um, the story that Biggie is telling is basically a, a socionomic rags to riches anthem and it almost word for word is autobiographical. Can we let's yeah. listen to a little bit of it? Yeah, this album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. To all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. Yeah, yeah. To all my peoples in the struggle, you know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby, baby. Check it, check it. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic Molly Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on private stock. Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match. Remember rapping Duke? The hard, the hard. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight because I rhyme tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade. Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? Peace to Ron G, Brucey e. B, Kid Capri. Funk Master Flex, Love Bug Star Ski. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. And if you don't know, now you know, you know. Justin, the lyrics, the lyrics, the lyrics. I just, I just want to say like, they're every black little kid from the ghetto's dream. I mean, that lyric, a young black male misunderstood and it's still all good. I mean, that's, that is my favorite. That's a timeless record, period. When we talk about the history of music in America, that song has to be somewhere near the front of that conversation because it's so, as you said, autobiographical. And it's so relatable in a sense. You know, in the years since, I've seen lists that say that Juicy is the greatest rap song of all time. And there's there's a lot of there's a lot of credence to that. Can we talk about homophobia in the context of Biggie? Because it was and still is a certain to a certain extent such a big part of hip hop. And Biggie yeah. had some questionable lyrics. How do you square that when thinking about his legacy? You know, I, I I thought about that a lot. I thought about the the lyrics that obviously he said them in 1994, 1995. Uh, I look at it as if it's not forgiving him for anything, but it's also understanding the time frame and understanding the conversations or lack of conversations that were being had at that point. We talk a lot about mental health awareness right now. Nobody was talking about that in hip hop 
uh, in the 90s. So when I hear like the homophobic lyrics, when I have to address the situations of Biggie's like tumultuous, passionate and ultimately violent relationship with Little Kim, uh, it's not excusing him for anything. But you would hope that with 25 years of hindsight, had he lived, he was like, you know what? I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done this. And I spoke to people who knew Big and I asked them about these situations. And it was like Biggie was the type of guy that he he wouldn't run from any question. And he he's all he was also a very thoughtful person when he needed to be. And I I would like to believe that, you know, 25 years later, that he would be far more sympathetic and far more empathetic to these conversations around homophobia, hip hop, uh, you know, you know, violence in, you know, personal relationships, because uh, these are things that these are conversations that have evolved so so much in the 25 years that 25, 26 years since he's been gone. So uh, you just you just hope that a person would evolve. Do you think we're there when it comes to women too? the same thing that uh, you're talking about regarding homophobia? We're having the same discussion around misogyny. Biggie's yeah. lyrics around women were somewhat violent, definitely sexual. In yeah. real life, he had complex relationships with women. But how do you reconcile Biggie's misogynistic lyrics? Do you do you see it in the same way? When I spoke to Chael Hadari Coker, he is a legendary hip hop journalist, and he also wrote the original uh, Biggie biography. Unbelievable! It came out in 2003, and he's actually a great mentor and friend of mine. But I asked him about this very same topic in terms of Biggie and the lyrics and some of the situations he found himself in with women in particular, something like Lil' Kim and, you know, their, their at times violent uh, relationship. And I asked him like, how do we discuss that in 2023 while still being like fans of his music and it, uh, of his life? And he was like, look, one thing I know for sure, that is not the man his mother raised him to be like Valletta would have never condoned, you know, violence against women or anything like that. And Biggie was also the type of person that like, yo, if I was wrong, let's say Biggie lives to be 45 years old, not 24. And you ask him about these very same questions. Chael was like, the Biggie that I knew was also very empathetic and very remorseful when he needed to be. And I think with the gift of life and the gift of experiences and the gift of actually evolving and maturing, Hopefully he would have talked about that because it's something that we see nowadays. You can't escape these conversations and you should have to answer for your own actions. So I think when I look at Biggie and I think of uh, the misogynistic uh, lyrics, I think that was just, you know, nobody was there to check him on that. That's not only how he rap, but that's how a lot of people talk back then, better or worse. We're commemorating this 50 years in hip hop this month which still is astounding to me every time I say it, but what role do you think Biggie will continue to play in our understanding of the genre? Oh, he's, he's going to play a major role the same way Marvin Gaye is and soul music, R and B the same way like James Brown and rock and roll and Elvis and things like that. Like you can't talk about the story of hip hop without mentioning the name Biggie Smalls. One, because yes, he is so talented. He made so much great music in such a short amount of time, but he's also a reminder of what this genre has survived. Like this genre lost two of its, arguably 
the two greatest rappers it's ever seen or the two most important rappers it's ever seen in six months. And it still found a way to survive, but we'll never forget it. And like, there'll never be a point in time when Biggie is irrelevant. I see kids wearing Tupac and Biggie shirts and they weren't even alive when Tupac and Biggie were alive. Hell, they weren't even, they were born in like 2007, like 10 years after Biggie died. So like when you have that type of cultural currency, you'll never go bankrupt. Justin Tinsley, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's a true pleasure. Justin Tinsley is the author of It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. Okay, so we're going to go out this month, the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, with a bang. Beginning Monday through Labor Day, we'll be revisiting some of our foundational hip-hop interviews with artists like Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, Ice-T, Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC, Queen Latifah, De La Soul, The Beastie Boys, Andre 3000, Questlove, Jay-Z, and more. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.